You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And it's just gone, 8 p.m. after the news. And that means it's time for Current Affairs with me, your host, Alameen Templeton. Jazakamallah for joining us. Well, i got quite a bit of stuff coming up in the show tonight. Let's see if my um, ambitions uh, can can um, keep themselves within the limits of my time constraints. Quite a lot to get through today. There's a lot of things happening in the world, all around in the world today. Coming up, we'll be having a look at a, a, survivor's, uh, a survivor's report from Gaza. What the suffering and, and the cost has been so far and where we are now. Uh, how much how much would you be willing to sell your soul for? Hmm? Would ten billion dollars be enough? Well, it uh, seems like Abdel Fattah Al Sisi uh, believes that ten billion dollars is enough to sell your soul. Story coming up here gives details of how uh, Egyptian um, intelligence chiefs and uh, top politicians are preparing. Apparently, according to re- reports coming out. Preparing to sell out Gaza for $10 billion. That's how much uh, is apparently being set aside to try and overcome objections to a sudden breakout by the Palestinians being forced out of Rafa into the Sinai Desert and into that compound we've spoken about, which has been built by Israel, uh, by um, Egypt just on the other side of the border. At the ICJ, only four countries have stepped up to the mark to support Israel. We'll be having a look at these miscreants and uh, have what Syria has had to say in comparison. Uh, In the United States, in the state of Michigan, Muslims uh, say that they are determined to make Biden pay for what he has done in Gaza. Uh, whether or not it's going to be an improvement to have Donald Trump uh, coming in, well, I mean, you can debate that among yourselves, but um, the Michigan, uh, the Michigan uh, Muslims say they are not willing to support Biden. They cannot put their cross against Biden. They cannot put it against Trump, and so they're going to spoil their votes. Given that the, uh, the last election in, in 2019 uh, saw... Uh, Biden, the Blues, the Democrats taking the state with just one or two percent, given that Muslims uh, constitute three percent of the state's population. This is one of those instances where being one of the marginal communities in in a country uh, can really count. And, well, Muslims in Michigan say that they are going to make sure that their vote counts this year round. By effectively not casting it. But, well, there you go. It's uh, one of the many conundrums thrown up by the modern American uh, democratic system. Uh, Then, if we have time, we'll be having a look at the U.S. Lobito Corridor. United States is planning to put together an investment corridor linking the DRC, Zambia and Angola. Uh, three very mineral-rich countries, uh, both in gold and coltan and all kinds of resources like that. Maybe it's time to move to Luanda. Hmm? Seems as though there's going to be a bit of a bonanza again on there uh, over the next 10 years or so. Uh, but anyway, let's get on with our, our show today. 
Today we have an article by Bashir Muammar of the Electronic Intifada. He speaks about Mustafa Ali Hamid Muammar, his cousin. He says Mustafa is director at the Jusur Alamal Association for Special Education. In 2006, he was arrested from his family's home in Gaza, along with two brothers, on charges of belonging to a resistance group. His brothers were released, but he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. This is his story in his words. In the crisp April air of 2016, I emerged from a decade-long imprisonment, hopeful for a fresh start. For years, I had clung to the promise of freedom, envisioning a future filled with the embrace of family life. I worked to establish myself, finally ending up with the Jusur Alamal School for Special Education, working with and for children with disabilities. It was rewarding, and with my dear wife Arkan, we started a family with hope and love. I had a few years of taking my first steps into the world beyond Israeli prison walls, but one fateful night in October last year, the night sky erupted in a cacophony of chaos and destruction. Israeli warplanes war struck like dark angels of death, descended upon our neighborhood, reducing homes to rubble and lives to mere shadows of their former selves. In the madness that ensued, I find myself fleeing for safety to the European hospital in Khan Yunus, unable to reach my home. But there I was met with yet another onslaught of devastation. Everything has now been taken from me. Israeli missiles in the indiscriminate fury tore through the fabric of my existence, snatching away the lives of my beloved mother, Naima, 68, Arkan, my wife, 32, and my innocent children, Batul, 7, Ali, 5, and Hani, just two years old. Though I was spared from witnessing the horror firsthand, the weight of loss bore down on me with crushing force. As I approached the hospital, my heart pounded with a mixture of dread and despair. The weight of what awaited me felt like an anchor dragging me down into an abyss of sorrow. With trembling hands and aching limbs, I pushed open the doors and stepped inside, stealing myself for the sight that I knew would greet me. And there they were, laid out before me in white bags. My knees buckled beneath me as I collapsed in front of them, the reality of their loss crashing over me like a tidal wave. Tears blurred my vision as I reached out, desperate to touch him one last time, but all I could feel were the cold, lifeless contours of the bags. There was my mother, who had waited so patiently for my return. There was my wife, my rock in the storm of adversity, Arkan, the Arabic word for pillars, was the strength that sustained me through years of suffering. Now that pillar is gone, and with her, all my dreams lie in ruin. There were my children, the very light of my life, all in one bag, their identities reduced to fragments of clothing. My Ali, Batul, Hani. They're just three of the more than 12,000 children killed by the Israeli genocide machine in Gaza. They have become statistics in the devastating toll of Gaza's suffering. But pain, pain is no number. The pain for all those parents who lost their children is the same. It is overwhelming and it is unbearable. I, who really showed harshness, find myself haunted by the memory of their disfigured bodies rather than the lively, innocent children I once knew. 
The journey to bury them was a harrowing ordeal in itself, each step heavier than the last. A truck laden with the bodies of my immediate family, along with 24 other relatives, became a somber procession of grief as we made our way through the streets of Gaza. Bodies were stacked upon bodies. There was no space for dignity or solace. We bade, we, bade, we bade farewell amid a chorus of wails and cries, our hearts breaking again and again with each passing moment. The pain was palpable, a raw wound that refused to heal. Yet even in our darkest hour, there was no space to fully express our sorrow. In Gaza, grief is a luxury we cannot afford. There are tents to be built, mouths to be feed, and wounds to tend to. As I stand amid the ruins of my shattered dreams, I've realized that freedom alone cannot heal the wounds inflicted by war and injustice. I tell my story not for pity, but in defiance. We are not just casualties of conflict. We are human beings with hopes, dreams, and a fierce determination to rebuild amidst the rubble of our shattered lives. Gaza continues to suffer under the weight of oppression. My plea is for justice, for dignity, for the chance to rise from the ashes and reclaim our humanity. We refuse to be silenced by the roar of bombs or the indifference of the world. We will endure, we will rebuild, and we will triumph. Um... Yeah, it really is a harrowing situation that we are being forced to witness and that the Ghazans are being forced to live through, to endure. But how long can they endure? How long can this go on? Joe Biden is speaking about how long are we going to have a... We're going to have a, 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 um, a ceasefire before Ramadan, hopefully. Mm, and if we don't, well, then we'll have a ceasefire after Ramadan. Makes no difference to Joe. Joe's not really interested in ending this. If he wanted to end it, he could have ended it much earlier than this. Um, Let's turn to the ICJ. Let's turn to who are uh, the supporters of genocide. Uh, in what one policy expert says is a stunning display of Israel and its allies' isolation on the world stage, six days of international court of justice hearings on the Israeli occupation of Palestine territories wrapped up on Monday with just four countries defending Israel's practices in Gaza and the West Bank and East Jerusalem over the past 57 years. The United States, the world's biggest funder of Israel's government and military, was joined by the United Kingdom, Hungary and Fiji in speaking in favor of Israel's illegal occupation, while 45 countries and three organizations testified against the Israeli government. The hearings took place against the backdrop of Israel's relentless bombardment of Gaza, which has killed at least 29,800 lives, and an announcement by Israeli Finance Minister Bezalel Smutrish that the country plans to build 3,300 new homes in settlements in the West Bank. While U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said last week that the settlement expansion is inconsistent with international law, 
which reversed a Trump-era policy. Human rights attorney Nura Erekat noted in the ICJ hearings that the United States framed compliance with international law as an impediment to the political process. Richard Visek, the State Department's acting legal advisor, invoked the Hamas-led attack on southern Israel on October 7, arguing before the court that it should not find that Israel is legally obliged to immediately and unconditionally withdraw from occupied territory. Uh, said Visek, any movement towards Israel's withdrawal from the West Bank and Gaza requires consideration of Israel's very real security needs. We were all reminded of those security needs on October 7, and they persist. But the vast majority of states present for the hearings rebuked Visek's claim, with Turkey's Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs, Ahmed Yildiz, arguing that the real obstacle to peace is obvious. The deepening occupation by Israel of the Palestinian territories, including East Jerusalem, and the failure to implement the two-state solution of Israel and Palestine living side by side. Representing the African Union, Ohio State University law professor Mohammed Halal provided the court with an overview of the Palestinian territory's history of occupation to answer the question, does Israel have title over the West Bank, Gaza and East Jerusalem? The answer is unequivocally no, said Halal. Since 1967, Israel has exercised belligerent occupation over the West Bank, Gaza and East Jerusalem. The African Union also submits that Israel's 57-year occupation of the Palestinian territories is unlawful and must be brought to an end. Legal experts, including Halal, spent six days testifying on the occupation Israel has maintained over the territories since the Six-Day War in 1967, including its construction of settlements inhabited by 700,000 settlers in the West Bank, and its annexation of East Jerusalem, its blockade of goods in Gaza, and its restriction of Palestinian movement. Speaking for the League of Arab States on the closing day of the hearings on Monday, international law expert Rolf Weil of the University College London delivered what observers called a legal masterpiece, explaining to the ICJ the illegality of Israel's occupation. According to Israel and its allies, said Wilde, the desire for Israel to protect its security somehow supersedes the rules of international law determining whether the occupation is existentially lawful. Instead, we have a new rule justifying the occupation until there is a peace agreement meeting Israeli security needs. This is the law as these states would like it to be, not the law as it is, he said saying the occupation has no basis in UN Security Council Resolution 242, which called on Israel to withdraw its troops from the occupied territories or from the 1993 Oslo Accords. Actually, he told the court, you are being invited to do away with the very operation of some of the fundamental laws of international law itself. Political analyst Marwan Bishara said the evidence presented by opponents to the occupation demolished British and American arguments in the hearings. I'm going to say something I will regret, but I'll say it anyway. I feel sorry for the United States and the United Kingdom, he said, watching the proceedings. In the first day of the hearing, he said it was clear someone, to someone like me, a student of this issue, that Americans and the British wanted to sound clever that they were disingenuous and selective and rather, to my mind, illogical. 
The US and UK led Israel supporters at the hearing in falsely claiming that the conflict in Israel and Palestine is merely a dispute, said Bishara. That should be left to the two sides, despite the fact that the two countries provide Israel with aid. This is an aggression, he said. As the African Union, as the Arab League, as well as the Islamic Conference have argued, this has been going on for 75 years. There is a process, there is a pattern by Israel to annex, to occupy, to settle, and to take over Palestinian territory, denying the Palestinians the right of self-determination. Meanwhile, Syrian Ambassador Amar al-Arslan, al-Arslan, not al-Arslan, al-Arslan, has appealed to the world's top court to hold genocidal Israel accountable at a very sensitive time, while the Palestinian people find themselves with no real protection. The occupation, he said, was one of the worst crimes against humanity, given Israel's flagrant violation of the Charter of Human Rights, the provisions of international law, international human rights law, and international humanitarian law, and all international charters and customary rules. He said today the practices of Israel, the occupying power, are the are, defi- are, def- are definitely the clearest, clearest reflection, unfortunately, of the failure of the international community to prevent the heinous crime of occupation and to ensure the implementation of the relevant solutions of the Security Council, the General Assembly, and the Human Rights Council. Mr. President, distinguished members of the court, we are here today to make sure they, the occupiers, do not get away with impunity. Israel violated Palestinians' rights in several ways, he said. First, by denying the right to vote. Occupation of others' land, most especially through settlement expansion, prevented their right to hold elections, while Israel's 2018 basic law recognizes the right to vote exclusively for Jewish people. Given, giving this most basic right to the Palestinians naturally meant the occupation had to end immediately and all UN member states had an obligation to, to guarantee the fundamental right to vote. In fact, settlement expansion and forced displacement of Palestinians off rural lands in the West Bank, known as Area C, which are both violations of the Fourth Geneva Convention, the settlement expansion and forced displacement, they were deliberately aimed at demographic manipulation to prevent the emergence of a natural majority of Palestinians in their ancestral lands. Many public statements by Israeli politicians attested to the fact that this was the real aim of Israel's actions in occupied territories, Al-Arsan said. Their statements claiming the lands near the Golan Heights and the whole of Jerusalem as Israel's capital flew in the face of earlier ICJ judgments specifically declaring those programs illegal. The court needed to order that all settlement activities cease immediately. Illegal structures be dismantled and all regulations enabling them must be removed from the statute books. And apartheid Israel must be ordered to make reparations for the damages they have inflicted on the Palestinians. Israel over the years built up a formidable record of violating UN resolutions and orders of the court, 180 UN General Assembly resolutions broken, and 227 Security Council resolutions ignored. This meant the UN had to be ordered to take steps to prevent this from continuing. Secondly, discriminatory practices also needed to be addressed, Al-Arsan said. Your Honours, in the devastated Gaza Strip, Long before 7 October 2023, 
Israeli practices racial discrimination towards the Palestinian population in the form of its ongoing blockade. The discriminatory nature of the blockade actually imposed on the Gaza Strip was recognized by the UN Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. This blockade was found to violate the Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. The actions of Israel are part of a large-scale, repressive, organized and systematic regime. Such actions have been identified as apartheid after a thorough, factual and legal examination by the UN and by various international organizations. Apartheid is most manifested in the occupied Palestinian territories, including Jerusalem, where illegally located settlers benefit from far-reaching privileges at the expense of the basic rights of Palestinians. Israel had to be ordered to end all discrimination, and its international partners who enable the oppression must be ordered to end all such assistance, Al-Arsan said. Thirdly, illegal occupation. This needed to end immediately because Israel was administering the occupied territories only for the benefit of its settlers and even to ensure the sustainability of the illegal occupation of others' lands. Israel has sought to exercise fait accompli sovereignty over Jerusalem and the occupied Arab territories, he said. Israel is not only committing the horrendous acts we have just mentioned, but we are currently witnessing Israel committing genocide in the occupied Gaza Strip, attacking Syria, attacking Lebanon, and committing war crimes and crimes against humanity. In fact, one of the reasons for Israel's consideration of itself of being above the law is that it has been carrying out illegal occupation and committing crimes for 75 years without facing accountability or any sort of consequence. Um, But uh, how are Michigan Muslims determined to make Joe Biden pay? Uh, If you have a look at those congressmen walking through the halls of the Capitol in Washington, D.C., the comments that they make uh, to protesters uh, asking them to do something about the Syrian genocide makes it very clear that as far as they're concerned, the killing must continue and all Palestinians must die. In fact, some of them have on record saying all Palestinians must die. More of them must die. And this is supposedly the land of the brave, the home of the free. But they know that they're on the back foot on the global arena. Uh, China has increasingly been moving into Africa. Uh, It comes with a complete package. It it doesn't come just with a proposal, say, to build a railway line. Uh, They'll come with a proposal on how to finance the building of the railway line, how to operate the railway line. They'll even bring in um, skilled engineers from their own country to operate the railway line, which has resulted in uh, protests in some of the countries uh, where they've been rolling out their projects, uh, people complaining uh, that uh, it's providing no benefits for the locals. Where are our jobs, they're asking? You're only, you're only hiring the Chinese. The Chinese say there's some jobs we're only willing to allow our own people to handle. Um, uh, one can understand that looking at ESCOM, but 
Uh, nevertheless, uh, at the moment, China is the country in the world with the most uh, free cash floating about. And uh, it has been using this to its advantage for the last 20 years in Africa, where its footprint has expanded uh, considerably. Of course, the United States hasn't been sitting back on its haunches watching all of this happening. Alarm has been growing in the United States. Uh, they've always had a very special relationship with the DRC. Two main reasons for that, three main reasons actually. Coltan, which is vital for making cell phones. Um, uranium, um, the uranium that made the two bombs that fell on Japan during World War II. They both came from, um, from the DRC. And uh, then there was also industrial diamonds. Uh, a major source of industrial diamonds in the world, as is South Africa and Namibia and Botswana. Um, industrial diamonds, if we uh, cut off our industrial diamond supplies to the world... Now, not the, not the jewelry diamonds, the ones that you put in your ring and you have been cut and polished and women like to show them off. No, not those kind of diamonds, industrial diamonds. They basically just look like um, stones. Uh, they don't polish them, but they use them to two, two fields where they are indispensable. Two fields that could bring these two global industries to a halt almost overnight. The oil industry and the arms industry. Yeah, you need uh, industrial diamonds on drill bits to dig, uh, to drill down into through through hard rock, um, particularly with offshore offshore oil drilling platforms. And you need industrial diamonds to cut armor plates. An armor plate is used in almost every weapon, whether it's tanks, it's armored vehicles, it's uh, aircraft, it's ships. Um, to make cannons, uh, to make uh, rifles, to make mortars, to make artillery shells. All of them need armor plates. And the only thing that can cut armor plate is uh, an industrial diamond. So the war industry and the oil industry, if Africa wanted to, could bring them to a standstill almost overnight. But we don't do that because we're not united. That's because we're unaware of uh, the power that we have in our hands. And of course, America is keeping a very close eye on these things and has uh, for a very long time. If you consider that uh, Mobutu Sesiseku was kept in power after the, the FBI organized the assassination of Patrice Lumumba back in the 1960s, uh, Mobutu Sesiseku, the worst dictator that Africa has ever seen, kept in power for all those years, 27 years he was in power, uh, kept in power by the CIA. Um, uh, we could go into a discussion about how, um, how well, what happened in the immediate aftermath of um, of um, Mobutu Sese Seko's death, uh, the invasion by Zimbabwe army, the invasion by the Rwandan army, uh, the French uh, pulling in, uh, wanting to take over Central Africa, the Americans saying, I'm sorry, but that's our sphere of influence, stepping in there, um, uh, ensuring Lauren Kabila took over. And then when Lauren Kabila became, um, became um, problematic for them, they assassinated him and put his son in power, Joseph. 
Uh, very unusual, you know. You've also got a situation you had in Chad, um, Idris Debi. Uh, he appears also to have been assassinated. Uh, he died under rather strange circumstances in northern Chad while apparently overseeing military operations against um, a rebel breakout in that area. The president of a country dies during a military operation. That is a very unusual story in the modern world. It's not like Alexander the Great. The national leaders are leading from the front. Can you see? <laughs> Can you see Donald Trump uh, getting onto a horse and leading a cavalry charge against the Ghazans? I don't see that happening. I would like to see that happening, and I'd like to be among the Ghazans while he comes charging towards me. Closer, closer, closer. Where's they say in Turkey? Girl, girl, girl. <laughs> yes. Um, so, uh, the DRC has always played a very special role uh, uh, as far as the United States is concerned. Zambia has always been a British kind of like um, fall, fallen into the British, British sphere of influence. But as we all know, Britain is a, is a mere shadow of its former imperial genocidal self. Although it still talks the same language, it can no longer walk the walk, but it likes to dance the dance and talk the talk. Um, and, of course, it loves free lunches as well, which is what colonialism is all about, isn't it? So, therefore, the United States, um, as a nod to Britain, is then also bringing uh, Zambia into the sphere of influence. And uh, the United States has, um, has been close to um, Eduardo dos Santos's government uh, ever since... Uh, um, the fall of of the communist government that preceded it, and uh, and so, I there was a story came out twenty years ago. Um, it was called uh, Luanda Gate, Angola Gate, Angola Gate. You can Google Angola Gate. Uh, and this was because a very very lovely high grade sweet crude oil was discovered off the coast of Angola. So sweet and pure, it almost doesn't need to be uh, refined. Some of the most highest grade oil you can find in the world. And of course, the America wanted all of that. And uh, so uh, the American oil companies pulled in. And these were the days when executive outcomes um, moved into northern Angola in order to uh, protect the gold, the, the, the diamond fields. The diamond fields in northern Angola. There was a genocide that happened there. 200,000 people are estimated to have died in that genocide. Um, in a shifting uh, of people between the borders of uh, Zambia, the DRC, and Angola. Uh, but uh, after about 20 years of uh, cooperation, for every barrel of oil that is pumped out of the Angolan oil, offshore oil fields, one dollar is put into Eduardo dos Santos and his wife's bank account in Switzerland. So if you have a million barrels a day, that's a million dollars a day going into Eduardo's bank account. So uh, it used to be a communist government, um, and America used to support the Jonas of Imbi of UNITA, remember all of that? And uh, that was all done away with. 
and Eduardo dos Santos took over power, and uh, basically America bought Angola. They agreed, okay, you can buy our country. Yeah, we're not communists anymore. So now Luanda is no longer a communist capital. Um, I suppose if I was a young man in Africa now, I would I would be very tempted to move to Luanda. I'd be very tempted to move to Luanda. Um, but then again, you know, so many growth and opportunities here in Africa, and yet Africa is also so often um, the graveyard of uh, hubris. Hubris, hubristic dreams, I suppose you could say. So America definitely wanting to maintain uh, its presence in this very uh, mineral-rich area of the world. Of course, um, Angola is just north of Namibia, which is also very rich in, in diamonds. So this whole kind of like diamond, oil, uranium, and coltan thing is all being tied together. The United States wants to tie it together with a railway line that it's calling the Libito Corridor. And uh, it is uh, receiving a hard sell. Uh, very definitely the leaders of uh, the three countries I mentioned are backing the United States plan to the hilt. Uh, it looks as though it will be very difficult for China to get a foothold in here um, if the United States uh, tries to tries to shut them out. Zambian President Hakainde Hichelima uh, says the U.S.-backed project to connect Zambia's copper mines to an Angolan port offers the nation a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Or I suppose uh, he should be saying once-in-a-generation opportunity. I think that's what he means. The project will link mining companies, uh, mining operations that companies, uh, including Barrick Gold and First Quantum Minerals, own uh, to the Atlantic Ocean port of Lobito by building a new track in Zambia and connecting it to an existing railway in Angola. The U.S. is supporting the refurbishment of the Angolan line through a $250 million loan, subject to due diligence that the International Development Finance Corporation announced last year. The Libito Corridor is central to the Biden administration's plans to secure access to crucial metals for the energy transition in Zambia and the neighboring Democratic Republic of Congo, while countering China's influence in the region. The ambitious plan uh, spans three countries and has support from the EU and the Group of Seven Wealthy Nations. Uh, this is a generational opportunity, once in a lifetime, to do something that is significant to our country, country's economies, to our people, in terms of opportunity and businesses, he, Chalema said in an interview outside the capital, Lusaka, last week. It is everything, he added. The project aims to cut transit times for suppliers to mines and the metals to port by weeks. Trial shipments from Congo to Lobito have taken about a week since they started in December, compared to with more than a month for mining companies that truck the metals to the South African port of Durban. Hichilema spoke on the sidelines of an investment forum the U.S. organized in Zambia to attract private investors for the Lobito project that will cost more than $2 billion. The day before, China announced its own $1 billion-plus plan to revitalize a railway connecting Zambia's copper heartland to the Tanzanian port of Dar es Salaam. So that's on the other side of the continent. That's on the eastern side. 
Zambia should conclude that deal by September, Hichilema said. The plan is for a state-owned Chinese company to operate that line, known as Tazara, on a commercial basis. Quite interesting. Quite interesting. Um, I wonder if we're going to get similar developments growing up around um, um, the Cabo Delgado province, the northern province of uh, Mozambique, where oil has been discovered there. They've got lots of gas. Gas and oil, South Africa. Well, we've seen Billiton uh, putting in there. We've got a gas pipeline uh, going all the way from Billiton's operations in South Africa through to Mozambique. And, uh, well, it doesn't seem as though much kind of like fully-fledged international cooperation. South African government doesn't exactly have a good track record when it comes out to rolling out successful projects. And uh, its uh, relationship with um, organized business in South Africa has been fractious, uh, to say the least. Um, And the construction industry, the construction sector in particular, uh, has been feeling very much left out after the Cold War period that seemed to uh, follow the 2010 um, World Cup uh, stadium corruption debacle that, that blew up uh, five years later. Uh, government found it very hard to forgive the private sector because the private sector had for so many years been making uh, so much hay out of so many stories about government corruption. And here the private sector turned out to be so good at corruption, the government, most government uh, officials didn't even know of the corruption until five years later. Now that's, uh, you know, uh, for the ton- tenderpreneurs in, in, in government, that's, um, that's almost like an own goal, isn't it? Um, and so the government is very, very, there were two reasons that uh, resulted in like this deep freeze between our government and, and the construction sector. One was the fact that the government had been accused for so long of being so corrupt and the private sector had always held itself up to be so clean. And here suddenly we had a very clear illustration of just how corrupt the private sector could be. And uh, this was just a few years before um, the collapse of um, oh, um, um, Steinhoff, the collapse of Steinhoff, 200 billion rands worth of money chewed up. Yeah, very definitely the government woke up to the fact that there's a lot of corruption going on in the private sector and we're not getting any of it. And that was the second reason, I think, uh, why the freeze between government and the private sector set in so deep and so cold and for so long. The government officials were frozen out of that whole process. They didn't get money, didn't get, didn't get their hands on that lovely lolly. It all went the way of the private sector. A lot of noses were put out of joint. And, um, well, we, we, we've seen uh, with the um, controversy over new procurement plans that have been unveiled with the budget last week, the construction sector still feels government is not consulting it properly, not consulting it like it should. Kind of like almost being spoken like, come and consult us. We've got a lot of bribe money here. Come on. Come on. We can be bras. We can sit down. We can make a deal. Come. Zama, zama. 
Um, uh, but uh, yes, the construction sector has been left out of consultants, consultations regarding procurement, uh, underlining, I suppose, just how how vital it is for a country to have a, a healthy relationship between uh, the business sector and the government politicians. So yes, um, and the construction sector uh, being uh, left out in the cold has also fin- uh, f- uh, felt cold winds blowing uh, from communities, from the grassroots. It's not just uh, the boys uh, up in the offices of power who have their noses put out of joint by the construction sector. You must remember that uh, construction is very, is very labor-intensive. They have to employ a lot of people in order to build buildings, to put bricks one after another in place, uh, to smooth walls, to straighten walls, to solve problems, to make dagger, to make um, cement, uh, to mix cement, and all of, all, of, all of those things. It's all labor-intensive. It's all labor-intensive. And uh, making your way around and up and down and through a construction site, and just that on its own is something uh, that is beyond the ability of artificial intelligence uh, to overcome. So it has always remained a labor-intensive sector. That means uh, that uh, the grassroots is also intimately involved with whatever is happening in construction. So if there's no construction, there's no jobs. And uh, with, uh, with the construction sector being uh, left in the shadows uh, by the government of the last few years, uh, community groups then started coming together and organizing, uh, resulting in what has been described as the construction mafia, following uh, construction companies uh, around the country to wherever they have a building or construction site, uh, and uh, a, suddenly there's a whole lot of protesters at the, at the entrance to the site, the protesters demand to be allowed on site, uh, even if they refuse permission, they force their way on site and, and disrupt procedures. You see, if you if 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 you've got, um, if you've got a construction site, and you've got your your today is our is our foundation day. Uh, you know, you, you you see when they when they make these big skyscrapers, the first thing they do after they've knocked down the building that used to be there is they dig a huge big hole. They dig a hole about four stories deep. And this is where they're going to be building the foundation. This is going to be that rock on which that entire building is now going to be built. That building is going to rest. It is going to stand firmly on that foundation. That means you have to get that foundation right. And uh, you all know that foundations are made up primarily of concrete, of cement, and uh, rebar, reinforced um, steel bars. And that means that when it comes to the day of pouring the cement for the foundation, um, if you've got a big building that you're building, that means that you're going to have at least like about 20 cement trucks 
throughout the day uh, that are going to have to arrive on schedule. They're going to have to pour their cement in in the designated holes that have been planned and prepared beforehand. Uh, the, 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 the cement needs to be evened out and smoothed out and made sure that everything is right. That truck needs to move out and another one has to take its place for the next filling. So, if you get a uh, disturbance on that day, in the middle of that operation, you can have 20 trucks in various parts of their journey who suddenly have to stop. Now, uh, you can't, once you've filled a cement truck with cement, the truck has to keep on churning that cement, otherwise it's going to set. If it sets in the drum, you're going to have to throw that drum away and get yourself a new drum, and that's very expensive. And when you've got 20 trucks filled with cement, uh, who now suddenly are unable to offload their, um, their, their cargoes, you've suddenly got a major problem developing. If you've got uh, half of your foundation has been set and now the other half isn't arriving, you could theoretically endanger the entire building. The entire building might have to be torn down before anyone and the first tenant is able to move in. So having uh, disruptions to your construction site uh, can be extremely costly for, costly for, for building companies. And uh, that's why we've um, we heard we we've had con- a bang. Uh, the, the what was it called it was called the Tuntu Bridge uh, in the Wild Coast a few years ago. Um, they're in the middle of, uh, of of you know pouring cement for a a, a suspension bridge. It's a complex project, um, and uh, right in the middle of their cement pouring, uh, you got uh, disruptions and so on, and eventually. It almost bankrupted a Veng. It almost bankrupted a Veng. A Veng has uh, has um, has bounced back uh, considerably, mainly by um, ensuring that uh, it has developed its operations offshore. So, although its still primary listing is in South Africa and it's still reporting in rands, a Veng is very much a foreign-focused company now. That's a lot of expertise. That's a lot of um, infrastructure development and building that's not happening in South Africa anymore. Uh, And, you know, alienation from the construction sector is possible for a government for a few years. But even the ANC has started to realize that uh, a, a, a distinct thaw is needed in the relationship. Now, when the ANC comes back and it says, okay, uh, let's start mending fences, let's start reestablishing connections uh, with the construction sector, well, we all know how good the ANC government is at rolling out any of its projects. Even even in, in, in the circumstance, um, I'm afraid whether or not the ANC is going to be able to to step back, to push back against the, the construction mafia, if there is like an organized crime in this. It may well be. It wouldn't be surprising. Um, it's, a, it's a very easy way to make money if you think about it. 
Um, there probably is a construction mafia on the go. But then again, there are also very real and tangible grassroots concerns that are also, as I say, are starting to um, pop up uh, on the construction sites because, as I say, it has always been labor-intensive, and that means that you've got to involve that uh, rather mercurial human factor. And as soon as you get that in, well, then... You could have a situation that has been happening at uh, the north of Johannesburg, Tukums uh, Rus, Extension 9 in Ranfontein. Tensions have been brewing following the arrest of 11 people, including four teenagers. Uh, the, the 11 still remain in jail. Residents had been protesting for jobs outside the construction site of the Western Mega Housing Project for weeks, and they claim that some of the people were wrongfully arrested. But Police Minister Beckett Taylor, yes, old uh, John Foster Beckett Taylor, he likes to wear that John Foster Homburg hat on his head, like some apartheid um, uh, politician. And uh, well, I suppose you can say about the politician, the apartheid politicians, at least they were efficient. The same cannot be said of Beckett Taylor. But anyway, old Beckett Taylor said on 16 February, my father's birthday, that those arrests were linked to takedown operations by the South African Police Service against the Leeds Construction Mafia, who want a stake in the multi-million rand housing project in Tukumsris. I guess it's easier, you see, to take out people who are just looking for jobs rather than um, taking out uh, the head of the construction mafia who can send out hitmen after you and who's probably got some dirt against you as well. And I wonder to myself if this wasn't a colored community, if the same kind of action would have been taken. Uh, you can say that uh, now I'm being racial in my analysis, but I live in Linasia. I know that you can go to the, um, the Sasa offices in Extension 8. Hey, you won't find any Indian people working there. You, you can go over to the council offices. You won't find any people working there. Um, you can go parks and recreation anywhere. Go and see if you can find in Indian employees. They're extremely thin on the ground. And, and this is like and still, even now, with all, of the, with all of the land invasions that have happened, this is still an Indian majority area. And there are no Indians working here. Um, so, yeah, there most definitely is uh, a, a distinct um, uh, racism that has emerged among our, in our ANC ranks and a consequence of ANC policies in South Africa. So, I mean, I ask that question. Would the police action have been taken if, say, this had been happening in Soweto? According to community members from the Tukumsrus Extension Line project, they have been protesting at the site since February, and all they're looking for is jobs. Uh, it's in, a, as I say, a mostly coloured community where some of the 360 almost completed RDP houses were occupied in August last year. The residents claimed then that there was a lack of transparency, transparency around the beneficiary list for the Tukumsrus Extension Line project. Kind of like reminds me of um, of the land invasions that happened uh, around uh, our trade route mall here in in, in Lanasia. As the plans were going ahead for building the mall, uh, the politician, the ANC politician on the on the Joburg Council, uh, 
decided to lead the land invasion because basically he wanted to hold the developers of Trade Route Mall to ransom. Um, basically using the people desperate for land. He was the housing minister. Can you believe it? He was the housing minister, the ANC housing minister. Went and got a whole lot of desperate people, persuaded them to invade the land where he thought Trade Route Mall was going to be built. But it turned out that he got this place wrong. And um, so they invaded a piece of land that no one wanted. And the reason why no one wanted it was because it's basically marshland. So... So the idiots, ANC member who couldn't even organize a land invasion, um, and then found himself with like he'd made these big plans, he'd made big promises to people, and now suddenly the money wasn't coming from um, wasn't coming from uh, trade route mall developers. So he had to find some other way to make the money. So what he did was he organized a housing project in Lahai, nearby Lahai to build houses for the people uh, who've been abandoned and found in this uh, open no-man's territory. They've built shacks on top of land, Tembelithle, that no one wants, and uh, shame. We must build these people houses now. So then what he did was he built all these houses, all nicely done, organized all of that. Then in the middle of the night, uh, the people in in, um, Tembelithle, who hadn't built shacks underneath the high tension cables uh, that made their way through through the through the settlement? Uh, suddenly, a whole lot of people came in and built shacks uh, just overnight under underneath the power power tension cables. And the people of Timberleafly said, "Oh well, we don't know where these people come from, but obviously they're very desperate because they've built they built their shacks where even we won't build our shacks." Then one, uh, one day, uh, the people of Timberleafle, who are waiting to be taken to their new homes in Lahai, uh, wake up and uh, the newcomers underneath the high-tension cables have all disappeared. Goodness gracious, where did our erstwhile neighbors go, they wondered. And as they turned their eyes over to the Lahai housing project, they discovered to their shock and horror that uh, there were people living in the houses that they were supposed to move into. Yes, you've guessed it. All the people that were living under the high-tension cables had been brought in by the councillor and he ensured that that they got the houses instead of the people in Lahai. So he, like, really did a dirty on the Tembelithle people twice over. But you'll be happy to know that he's now in jail. Ah, and uh, it's it's a happy ending. Uh, Well, uh, uh, you know, it's not that much a happy ending for the people of Tembelithle. They've uh, they've had um, there was a, the, the Joburg Council was going to build um, solar, introduce solar power for them, so they could have uh, at least lights at night. Uh, and well, people living in Malaysia were very impressed to see solar panels be built, solar panel towers and everything. Um, a company came around and put like. Um, uh, circuit board boxes into people's houses. But uh, the company that was supposed to bring the cables linking um, the power boxes uh, to the solar panel towers, they never arrived. And uh, five, six years later now, the solar panel towers have been ripped to pieces. They've all disappeared. People have got these uh, circuit boxes in their houses for no use whatsoever because you can't connect it to anything. 
So, yeah, that's, uh, that's the sort of thing that's been going on in and around South Africa on construction projects and housing projects and so on. Uh, so, yeah, uh, 360 houses, almost completed RDP houses, were occupied in August last year because there was no transparency around the list of people who were supposed to move into those houses. Residents say there's been no development for their, de- for their benefit since 1994, while people in surrounding areas have received title deeds. Some say they have been approved for housing subsidies. I wonder how many of those people who've received title deeds are coloured. Furthermore, the unemployed residents and members of the Ranfantine Contractors Forum, which represents 160 small to medium businesses in the area, accused the ANC-led local government of depriving them of the 30% stake in the ongoing mega housing project uh, in Ranfantine. Then on February 13, a protest was held. The police were called. At some point, they started firing, presumably rubber bullets. No serious injuries were reported uh, at the protesters who'd been camping outside the project. A scuffle broke out and 11 people were arrested. Now this is now a construction mafia. This is Becky Taylor uh, taking action against a construction mafia. He's going against colored people because he knows they're a minority group in South Africa. They're an easy target. Uh, most of them are unemployed and most of them are poor. So now he can be seen to be like taking action against the construction mafia. When in actual fact, all he is doing is he's acting as an oppressor against the innocent. Gauteng police spokesman Dimakatsua Nevolui told Roundup that on 13 February, members of the provincial organized crime responded to a complaint at a construction site in Tukumsrus. Upon arrival, they found about 100 people and tried to engage with them in the process. The project manager was assaulted and one police officer was disarmed while another member was pelted with stones. A group of 11 people were arrested after backup was called and the member's firearm was found in possession of one of the protesters. All suspects aged between 19 and 47 appeared at the Ramfantine Magistrates Court on charges of assault, robbery, pointing of a firearm and malicious damage to property, said Nevului. The suspects are due back in court on 26 February, that was Monday. Community members claim that some of the arrested teenagers were not even part of the protest. Said Felicity Fundamava, my son is only 19. He's innocent but was arrested. We are not even allowed to see him. They should release our children. Another resident, Isabel Johnson, said our children were nowhere near the site of the protest. There were four boys and they were picked up by police while on their way to the ward councillor's house and the protest was long over. My son is supposed to rewrite matric but now he's in jail. At this point, we do not know what to do to get them released. Tensions have been brewing in the community for the past two months over several housing projects being built, namely the Western Mega Project in Tukumsrus, Dan Klome, Drochiel and Montrose. We were told that 70 people from the area were given jobs there, but the residents believe that's not enough. In a statement by Kaele on the third quarter crime statistics released on 16 February, he noted the arrest during a takedown operation in Tukumsrus, he says. Uh, it sounds like really like, you know, hardcore, huh? a takedown operation. We took out the construction mafia, but in actual fact, you just went against some, some mothers and uh, some teenage boys who were desperate for jobs. You arrested them. They've got, they, they, they've got no recourse in the law. They've got no money. They can't afford lawyers. Um, they haven't been even been released on bail, and their parents can't even re- organize a bail hearing. So it's an easy target. It's an easy claim. He can 
roll out the police statistics and say, yeah, we're taking action. We're, we're, we, we've arrested 11 people during a takedown operation in Tukumstras. A takedown operation. Huh? A group calling themselves the Tukumstras Business Forum attempted to disrupt a 330 million rand housing project demanding a 30% stake in the group. The police's swift response led to the arrest of those people with two firearms confiscated. But Angie Shalembe from the Ranfantine Contractors Forum said LA's statement did not accurately represent the situation on the ground. She denied LA's allegations that they are affiliates of a construction mafia. For the past three years, we've been begging, praying, fighting for the 30% due to us by legislation. It's not like uh, some kind of thing that they've made up. This is law requires that in development projects like this, 30% should go to local communities. The developer and main contractors bring their people from as far as Pretoria and Rudaput to come squander wealth meant for the small and medium enterprises in Ranfontein. Instead, <clears throat> the developer threatened us. We consulted the office of the speaker and of the mayor for intervention, but nothing happened. The community liaison for the housing project, Colin Williams, said the area remains tense and he has received threatening calls from unknown people since last week. He says we have statistics to prove that about 70 people from Tukumsrus were hired for the project. So there, 70 people, a 320 million rand housing project, 70 people get jobs. Well, the community says that's not enough. Maybe they've got a point. Maybe the construction company has a point. I mean, you've got skilled workers. Uh, you've only got 70 unskilled jobs over here. The skilled workers we bring from Pretoria. We can't have unskilled workers doing skilled work on the day. You know, there are all kinds of arguments that could be made. But for your police minister to try and claim that this is a major, major victory against the construction mafia that has been taken down, well, then you know that he's really scratching about for some good news stories. And such is the fate of ANC politicians in South Africa today. I am afraid that that is it. So we've come up uh, to the top of the hour and it's time to bid our farewells. I will be back again, inshallah, tomorrow afternoon uh, for uh, Eye on the World. Uh, no show, no current affairs tomorrow night, but we will be back on Friday, inshallah. Be sure to join us then. Jazakallah for joining us now. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.